Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out Toronto today for Thursday, June the 2nd. It is Election Day in Ontario. We'll delve into some of that with QP Observer's Sabrina Nanji. We'll talk with the Toronto Sun's Anthony Fury about some of the big issues and expectations for tonight also. And everybody had an opinion on Amber Heard vis-a-vis Johnny Depp. Were there winners? Were there losers? Well, Shiba Siddiqui and I have our opinions as well. And that's what we start this podcast with. Thanks very much for finding us. Toronto Today starts now. Uh, okay, here we go. Amber Heard, uh, Johnny Depp. Everyone had a, an opinion on it yesterday. It was all over the place. People talking about it at kids' soccer. La- the only person that didn't have the uh, opinion on it last night, Sheba, I saw was a- any of the 14-year-old soccer players. Um, although my kids said, Johnny Depp won, right? And I said, nobody won. <laughs> like, that was my, my no. first opinion. I'm not sure there Johnny was a Depp winner. Won. Johnny Depp won. He won $13 million. He won $15 million, of which she, she gets $2 million. So, no, he won. He won his name. He did absolutely win. She defamed him. That's, that's what has come out of this. That's what the jury has decided. And according to the jury, she acted with malice when describing herself as a victim of domestic abuse. So there is a winner in this. I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're telling your son. That, you know, the, through the course of these last six weeks and what we've seen happen in this courtroom and how dirty and ugly and their reputations and their personal lives and the videos and the recordings. But... The jury has decided there is a winner in this. I think I think the concept of of yes, th- there was because no doubt to me there was abuse. There's no doubt to me there were uh, there was abuse that went in a physical direction. But yes, from a defamation perspective, my my point was to my boy, don't champion Johnny Depp here and don't assume that it, you yeah. know he walks away from this. I don't think he walks away from this reputation intact. And you and I might have talked about this when the first like six, seven weeks ago, it feels like he was on the stand. This this trial took a break. That was when um, he was responding to the uh, the Amber Heard's defense lawyers uh, and whatnot. But I how, how did the how did the verdict make you feel? Uh, I I where do I start with this? I feel like there were so many mistakes made in this trial uh, and you're right. Neither of the reputations will recover from this. That's what I think. But I mean, for example, the jury was never sequestered. And so therefore, they saw things like hashtag Amber Turd, hashtag justice for Johnny. They saw the open online hate, the one-sided attacks. Amber was accused of faking the injuries in her photos from his alleged beatings or, and, and convincing witnesses to lie. So the jury saw all of this online. I feel like they should have been sequestered. And yeah, sure, he's going to get $15 million from her. Does she even have $15 million? to give him. I mean, I, and you know, it would be great if he came forward and he said, you know what, I'm going to donate this somewhere because he doesn't need the money. Uh, he wanted to win. He wanted to destroy her. We heard this. We read the, the text messages were read in court of how much, how badly he wanted to, to destroy her. He has succeeded. He has succeeded in that because she came forward and this shows, you know who suffers here, Greg? Victims of domestic violence. That's who it is. I don't know if you read Amber's statement. She released a statement after the verdict was announced. Mm -hmm. So one part of it, here's what she had to say. She said, I'm even more disappointed with what this verdict means for other women. It's a setback. It sets back the clock to a time when a woman who spoke up and spoke out could be publicly shamed and humiliated. She's not wrong. But I see it as an individual. Here's me saying this. I see it as an individual case. And I see her as not women, plural, but as a woman, and I don't see, I know you're a woman. I don't think you and Amber Heard have anything in common. I don't think my wife and Amber Heard have anything in common. I see two celebrities engaging in a terribly tragic 
toxic relationship who are utterly dysfunctional. Neither are blameless. They both probably aren't trustworthy with what they swore to tell the truth about. Um, and uh, and I would consider myself as pro-feminist a person as there is. And I don't I just don't I don't see Amber Heard as representative just the same way. Bill Cosby doesn't represent me. Deshaun Watson doesn't represent me. Johnny Depp doesn't represent me. I, but you, as far as you, you don't beat women, you don't rape women. These are what all of these men were accused of. There are so many victims of domestic violence that will be way too scared to come forward now because of what happened to her in such a public way. Do you remember when she took the stand and spoke about Depp allegedly hitting her, manipulating her, sexually assaulting her? The world laughed. They mocked her on social media. We mocked her. The worst, of, we, the worst of the world did. And, and, uh, and that vast majority of people aren't the worst of the world. It was a joke. It was a No, I'm uh, everywhere online. It was Team Johnny. I feel like that was a part of his team putting out a hit campaign on her online. But I'm saying we because we're a part of this abhorrent machine. People took close-up shots of her crying and they turned it into memes. They put this all over TikTok. Now, TikTok, this is the new generation. Our kids are or going to be on this. So this is what they're seeing about a domestic violence case. It's, it's become a big joke. And yes, I will admit, Herd was not the perfect victim. She did make mistakes. Like, and, do, you, do you relate to her? I don't relate to Johnny Depp in any context. I can't, um, I can't see I what it has to do with I relate to her as another woman, me. as another woman who's trying to stand up for herself and have her voice heard. I, I mean, this domestic violence situation, no, I can't relate to that. So but, do you think she, but do you think she told the entire truth the entire time on the stand? I Did, don't know. I, I can't, but I don't, I think both of them were, both of them have some blame in this. She did make mistakes. She secretly recorded him when they were together. That's weird. Yes. We, but in those recordings, we see his temper. We see his abuse. 100%. Uh, throwing bottles, yelling, threatening her. And the text messages, things like, oh, like, what was it? Let's, it's hard for me. To, let's drown her before we burn her. I will beep her burnt corpse Horrific. afterwards to make sure she's dead. This yeah. is what, these are the text messages. So if he can text this to someone, what was happening in the relationship? We only saw a, what she secretly recorded. Yes, that's weird. Yes, that was a mistake on her part. But when it, after all of this came to light, after we heard everything that he said to her, what happened on Tuesday evening in London? Depp received a standing ovation after performing live with, with Jeff Beck at the Royal Albert Hall. A standing ovation after everything we have seen and heard him do for the last That's terrible. Six weeks. Bill Cosby went around on tour well uh well being, you know, involved in civil lawsuits. And remember he was coming through southern Ontario, right? Then I wasn't he doing shows in Kitchener and London and he was. people were uh, uh, applauding him. I just I, I know it's hard and it's easy for me to say. I got it, but I, I try and evaluate things on an individual level. And again, all the women in my I don't I don't see I don't see Amber Heard in, in those women. I think she was lying well on the stand. I think she tried to be malicious. I th Even her statement yesterday. Do she you think he did? Absolutely. So I, I, I cannot defend either of their behavior. But he got away with it. So listen, just as much as I think this jury got it wrong, Greg, so did we. Yes, he, he got he got away with being an abusive husband. There's no doubt. And I would, I would make the case. And he got a standing ovation. Terrible. We laughed. We gossiped. We shamed. We judged. So for me, we are just as guilty as a society for condoning this because there is a man who, who we've seen 
was domestically violent to her. Yes, this is the, the case was not about his violence. It was about whether she defamed him in that Washington Post article. And that's where she, the jury has deci decided is guilty. But you don't see the women around you here. I see the women all around me. I see the women all around me because of the domestic violence. Every woman has been in some kind of a situation, whether it's in her home, in the privacy of her own home, or even at a club in the middle of the night, where something has happened to her in some way. 100%. So, in, and, so, and, so we can all identify with Amber Heard in some, in something, something she said in the trial, how big it was, how small it was, there is an identification. So for all of these women, these domestic violence survivors who wanted to come forward, this is a, this is terrifying for them now. If, if they see themselves in Amber Heard, if they do, and I, I, I know women that told me well, yesterday having a man that abuse they don't. You, but having a man, and I know women who do. So, I, I, and I do also, right. but it isn't all women. And and this is this is the this is the problem with lumping every. Well, why does it matter if it's all women or if it's ten women? Because ten percent of the population. Of course, the that's too many. Of course, that's too many. But then that means there's ninety percent. How about a glass of ice water? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. We're very excited to welcome in our next guest. I always enjoy our conversations. He's uh, the Liberal MP for Beaches East York. He is Nate Erskine Smith. It's great to have you on the show as always. Thanks for making the time, Nate. Thanks for having me. Um, you're a three-time tell tell everybody tell our listeners take us uh, inside the uh, the the war room as it were. What's it like for a candidate waking up on election day? That sense of relief, sense of exhaustion, anticipation. You've done this three times. You've been successful three times. In some ways, on election day, you've already done everything you can do in terms of reaching out to undecided voters and and getting in front of everyone you can. But you're in the final stretch to encourage everyone to get out and vote. And so you kind of have to just put the blinders on and hustle for one final day and one full day. Is it like being a best man at a wedding? Is the speech uh, get, get written no matter what the result around one o'clock in the afternoon or or is most of it uh, all yeah, some, the subject and predicate like done already? Yeah. No, something like that. Some, some elections are clearer than others. In 2015, I had no idea whether I was going to win or not. In subsequent elections, you could just feel on the ground it was easier. People were more decided. In this election for the province, and here in Beaches East York, my local candidate's Mary Margaret McMahon. She's excellent. Yeah. It's going to be a close election. So it's it's very similar to where I was in 2015. We were talking about that. There's a ton of Toronto. Uh, there's a ton of 416 races, if you will. They're really, really close and really intriguing because uh, of some of the people um, involved. Um, you probably took note yesterday uh, that Toronto police are going to bring back unvaccinated um, employees. And there's there's uh, almost a thousand of them. Um, this is a really interesting concept. This is this is not federal, um, you know, something that that is under federal jurisdiction, but it isn't dissimilar. You sense that sort of frustration um, to get back to, you know, the pre pandemic, not just travel measures, but at the same time, uh, looking at, 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 at the new normal that we're now existing in when the Toronto police does that. Do you think that has a domino effect to get more conversations going in either workplaces or or public servants? I'm not sure it will have a domino effect, but I think the core point is we should be having these conversations in light of the evidence around transmission risk, because the two-dose mandates have been incredibly important to save lives, ultimately, to increase vaccination rates, and we know that prevents against hospitalization and death in a serious way. Three doses are even better, and everyone should get their, their third dose. But when it comes to transmission risk, and we just had this debate at the federal level yet again around travel, but there's no good evidence now 
that two doses, especially two doses so long ago, reduced transmission risk in, in a serious enough way to warrant limiting travel, for example, and certainly not to warrant limiting travel without accommodation. So I think organizations like the Toronto Police, organizations like the Federal Civil Service, where there's an active review underway, mm -hmm. and I think just general federal rules in relation to travel, we need to accommodate people who are under and unvaccinated. And there are too many cases that we hear in our office of people who deserve to travel to see loved ones in Canada or around the world. And, and we should be looking at accommodation much more quickly than, than we have been. Nate Erskine-Smith, our guest, uh, MP for Beaches East York on Toronto today. There's also obviously the conversation um, and the evolution of opinion about natural and acquired immunity. People have had Omicron en masse. It's been in my household. It's been in many households of our listeners. So if, if I've got a teenage son who's 14 who said who's had two shots and had Omicron earlier in the winter. Um, you know, I like, again, wh wh what are we talking about when it comes to the debate as to the quote, fully vaccinated end quote, it's, um, it's, it's a bit of a tricky game here. If we're not going to uh, acknowledge, uh, acknowledge that there's a, an element of a bit of a wall of immunity that gets built up after infection, the same way there is when you get vaccinated in the first place. I agree. Uh in fact, months ago when I was engaging directly with the health minister and transport minister's team on this, I, I said as much to say, you know, we should look at our mandates to extend them in some cases to three doses, but to include consideration for natural immunity and certainly to accommodate under and unvaccinated people via rapid testing as an option so that we, we know that they're not going to get vaccinated at this point. The the importance of increasing rates remains important for third doses, but we're not going to get to those people. Let's make sure we accommodate accommodate those people. And and your point around natural immunity is well taken. There are logistical challenges, I'm told. And so the at the end of the day, if these logistical challenges are going to get in the way such that these two-dose mandates are continue into the foreseeable future, then I think in the short term, it, I, I sort of came to the conclusion that it makes sense to either accommodate or drop them. Uh, how, mu how much are you hearing? How often are you hearing from constituents about what's happening at, at Pearson Airport or just hearing about travel in general? I, I brought it up yesterday that if we're to take a family trip, we we've looked into even the logistics of of driving to Buffalo and flying from there. If we're going overseas or we're going to go to a, a big U.S. city like a Boston or a Washington, D.C., I, I want to stay here. I want to fly from Pearson because um, I think there's an element of, of supporting the local economy, quote unquote. But you must be hearing from constituents that have found the Pearson experience worse than ever and remarkably frustrating. Entirely. And, and on a personal note, I just flew from Ottawa to Toronto and it was a nightmare as well. And it, it, it's not acceptable. It's not sustainable. And we need to fix it. And we, we need to fix it yesterday. And so it, it comes down to just the core customer service aspect of government. And it's about the airport. It's about passports. It's in some mm -hmm. cases about immigration and, and, and people going through that process, which is also far too delayed. But I, I think in some ways, and I know there are stresses, stresses on the system because of COVID and, and there, we got to bring back human resources and, and all of that. But at the end of the day, we have to get back to basics and, and focus on customer service for Canadians. Uh, I know when you abstained on the motion, the conservatives brought forth a, a, a motion to change a lot of travel measures sometimes. And, and I'll, I'll defend you here. I know you, you've taken, oh, you know, that, that, that's not taking a stand. You're sitting on the fence. But I think you could you, you, you make the point you agree with some of those measures, but you can't support all of them at this point in time. Maybe a couple months from now, all of them make sense. But right now for you, they don't. Pat, and, and I would say also in 
this is the third motion around remove all travel measures and revert back to pre-pandemic rules. And the first two times I voted against it on the basis that I didn't agree with everything that was there. And I could I could say, well, I don't agree with everything, which means I don't support the motion, which mm -hmm. means I'm going to vote against it. In this case, though, this is the third time. I'm incredibly frustrated that the answer I get back from Health Canada functionally is, well, vaccines save lives. And I know they do. But there are two justifications for a two-dose mandate. It is to increase rates, and we've exhausted that. There was a strong usefulness to that, but that usefulness is no longer there. Everyone who is going to get vaccinated because of the mandate has been vaccinated. And the other justification is, is around transmission, transmission risk. But there's no evidence now that transmission risk is sufficient to warrant an exclusive two-dose mandate that creates hardship. Uh, there's, it's not a compelling justification now. And so where does that leave us? Well, that leaves us with... In my view, we need to adjust the mandate in a serious way, modify it to accommodate people, drop it entirely potentially. But this idea of reverting to pre-pandemic normal also means dropping masks, which I, I know many people who uh, are traveling and I know many people who don't consider the two-dose mandate to be effective but still want the masks to be there. And I would also say it would also functionally end surveillance testing at airports, to that that audit testing to, to, to test for variants. I don't want to drop those things right now. And so what was I to do? I could have voted against it, but I also want to make a point to the government that this idea of this slow and we're constantly reviewing the situation, that's no longer good enough. There are too many people who are being affected by this, and we need to move much more quickly. I agree with you uh, 100%. I know uh, my wife and I watched you do the uh, political political blind date on TVO. And I thought it was really fascinating. Um, I love the concept of the show. And a lot of what you talked about during that show was about legalizing drugs, was about the opioid crisis. So I'd ask this when you see what's happening in BC right now, and, and it became kind of a provincial election issue yesterday about what we would do, what we would, there's a big difference between legalization and decriminalization of the harder drugs. Where do you stand on the issue. It's got so many complications. Safe injection sites have uh, complications, obviously, for for constituents. Um, what are the conversations we should be having about it in a in a mature and nuanced fashion? We should take a step back and say, what is our objective here? Our objective should be to reduce harms related to drug use, to reduce drug use, certainly in some cases. Uh, and unless there's a, a medical reason for it and, and and or recreational use like alcohol where people can use it responsibly and it's not causing harms, but we want to reduce harms related to substance use. And we ultimately want to save lives. And when we look at the measures that are in place right now, what criminalization does, if if and I've heard it from constituents who have had loved ones who have who've lost their lives because they didn't go out and seek treatment. They didn't go and seek help. They didn't call the police when an overdose was happening because they were worried about the criminal law. And when we think of alcohol addiction, when we think of gambling addictions, how do we treat them, Greg? We treat them through the health system. And there's no consideration whatsoever about treating them through the criminal justice system. Instead, with other substances, if there are substance use issues and addiction-related issues, we somehow think that the police should have a role. And, and I can tell you that the police having a role undermines the very purposes of, uh, of what we want to do, which is to save lives through a health approach. So mm -hmm. that's what I, I, we should treat patients as patients and not as criminals. I think that's the core point on, on that front. And then the other element, which people don't fully realize, I think, when it comes to prohibition, but if you really track back to alcohol prohibition, what it did, it drove everything underground, criminal organizations profited, but worse, people would die because of an unsafe supply, that's a bootleg right. supply. And that very same thing is happening today. The, the thousands of lives that are being lost 
are being lost, not because someone is purposefully overdosing. It is because these drugs yeah. are toxic. The experts describe it as an opioid toxicity crisis. And, and how do you solve that? You solve it through a regulated, a strictly regulated supply. Yeah. And so that's, I think, the conversation we really need to focus on. And what's come out of BC is really important, I, I think. It's everything slower than I'd like it to be. Everything's slower than what the I think the crisis demands. We are seeing movement. It's important. I don't want to dismiss the movement we're seeing, but my message to the government faster. We need to go further. We need to embrace the evidence in a much more serious way, given the lives at stake. Nate Erskine Smith, uh, MP uh, for Beaches East York. Always enjoy our conversations. Thanks for getting up early for our audience. Let's do it again really soon, Nate. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate it. Nate Erskine Smith, our guest. Uh, Gord Rennie. Yes. Uh, you've got our four for four quiz. I sure do. Well researched. You, yeah, I, I just saw you scribbling out some notes a minute or two ago. I just found out it's election day today. Well, what? Get, get with it. <laughs> vote early, vote often. So I have, vote vote, uh, yeah. vote every hour if as you can. As many times as you can. Uh, yeah. Other countries, you can do that. Can you? Just keep going out mm-hmm. around. And, like when Abe Simpson comes in That's at a bar right. and then he leaves and he comes back <laughs> and then he leaves. Okay. What I, do we got for the quiz? I have some election, uh, Ontario election uh, fun facts for you in, in quiz form. How fun will they be, really? Oh, it's don't don't you worry. Politics. You're going to learn something and you're going to walk away Giddy. a smarter person. We'll start with this I'll one. I'll walk away, that's for sure. We'll see about the other part. <laughs> Over the past 50 years, how many of them were the PC party in power? Was it 17, 40, or 25? Oh, how many years of the has past there been 50? a conservative premier in yeah. the last 50 years? Yeah. Okay, now, oh. all right. Seven, 17, 40, or 25, Dave? Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm going to say 25, I think. All right, Greg? Well, what are the options again? 17? 40? Yeah, 40 is too many um, because of the, the liberal run with McGinty. So 25. Okay, and Sheba? I was going to say, I'm going to be different and say 17. Oh, you should have gone with the flow. I know. 25. <laughs> so half and half. Yeah. Hmm. Makes sense. Bill Davis, like what, about 14 years in a row? Yeah, that's I right. Yeah. See, I give you extra marks for actually thinking it out. You thought it out. <laughs> you really thought that, that one out. All right, number two. In what year was Ontario's first election held? Is it 1867, 1870, or 1875? Sheba. 1875. All right, Dave. 1870. And Greg. 1870 also. On September 3rd, 1867 was the first election. That makes sense, Yeah, because the country and everything. You couldn't wait. Only (laughs) men, of course, over the age of 21 were allowed to vote, and voting was done by a show of hands. We so can do that this time that's around. Really a favor. Favor. Really you accurate. You raise both your hands up. Right? <laughs> yeah, really accurate. <laughs> Wait, I didn't count. Do it again. Is that uh, a fake hand? <laughs> and I'm sure both the candidates had really progressive views yeah. late in the 19th century about yeah. equality yeah. and justice yeah. and, uh, and you know, making amends for past. Oh, yeah. They probably didn't no. at that point in time. That's unfortunate. Question number three. 1917 was the first year... <laughs> In Ontario... You're really hitting our older demographic oh, yeah. hard. Then, hey, Gordon. I told you you're going to learn something okay. about Ontario voting. What was the first thing that happened? It was the first time a secret ballot was used, oh. women mm. were allowed to vote, or the introduction of door-to-door enumeration. Mm. Greg. In what year? 1917. Okay. Uh, I, I think that's early. I, wrongly, I think that's early for women to vote. I don't think... The, what was the first one? Uh, the secret ballot. Yeah, well, I'm going to say the secret, secret ballot, ballot. Where you didn't have to reveal who you voted for. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, secret ballot. All right, Sheba. What was the last one? Door to door enumeration. Uh, 
So I'm almost positive that women were allowed to vote just before 1917. So I'm going to say uh, secret ballot. And Dave? Yeah, that's the one that really caught my attention, too. So I'm going to go with my gut on that one and say secret ballot. Secret ballot was used for the first time in 1875. Oh, The door-to-door enumeration mm. was 1933, so that leaves the women got the right to vote oh, really? in 1917. Oh, I it was the, and you know by who? Fun fact, you guys know who brought that in, who changed that for all of us? Laura Come Secord? on, what's her name? What's her name? <laughs> Anne Frank. She was my password in high school for certain things. Oh, oh. so she's still your password for, like, your banking app? <laughs> <Yeah>. Margaret Trudeau. <laughs> you guys don't know this. Nellie McClung. That's oh, it. Right. I'm sorry, I was that. gapping on the name. Viola Desmond. <laughs> I'm going to keep guessing wrong. Well, you keep guessing because we got one more statue, question. There's a statue of Nellie McClung in Ottawa. There is. Yes, there yeah. is. Yes, there should yeah. be. The last one is a true or false. So true or false, there have been nine referendums in Ontario's election history. Is that true or false, Greg? Nine. That's false. That's false. false. That's too many. All right, Sheba? False. All right, and Dave? Yeah, I, I'm just going to go uh, on the other side of the fence, and I'm going to say true, All right. just for fun. How is it on the other side of the fence? It's different. <laughs> is, is it lonely? Yeah. Because there's only been two. Oh. The first referendum yeah. was the prohibition of alcohol, which Ontarians supported to keep. Surprisingly, and the what? last one was in 2007, where they asked to change it from um, the pa- first past the post system, which we have now, to a mixed member proportional blah blah. And Ontario decided to keep the way we had it because it sounds confusing. I mentioned seeing that in the ballot. I don't even remember doing that in 2007. I don't ever. I don't ever know if we'll get to a ranked ballot. I know there's a lot of people that mm. want it, and they sure want. They use it now during leadership conventions. But I don't know that we'll ever get to where we're marking. By the way, like if you go to the states, I, I you know, our, my neighbor in the states, when he would go vote, I'd be jealous. He and his wife would go vote, and I'd be like, "How many ballot? Like how many things are there?" And like I don't know, sixteen or seventeen. I lost count. What? You're voting on the dog catcher. You're voting on like local judges. You're yeah, voting but, I mean, on you're everything. Not researching all of them. No, right? they're not. So it's so, harder. Yeah, it's, it's a, but it, it, you're it, throwing it, a dart at half of them, and you're like, <laughs> I don't know. The dog catcher can be a bill. That's yeah. good. Is he yeah. pro? Is he a pro dog catcher or an anti dog catcher? Yeah. Is he a cat person? Does he use a net? <laughs> a tranquilizer dart? I'm I'm against that. I won't exactly. vote for him. So you have to do some research. These right wing maniacs and their uh, their dog catching. I will not tolerate it. <laughs> All right, get out and vote. Great quiz, Gordon. Yeah, that was great a good one. inspiration. And uh, and we'll do uh, we'll do just that. I was going to say even the door to door thing. I think the year you gave a lot of people still wouldn't have had doors. Oh, nineteen. I think you just kind of wandered. Yeah, like. Yeah, that first season, a little house on the prairie. It's not a lot of. Could there wasn't a lot prior. of security. There wasn't a lot of like screen doors. No. You could you want to come into somebody's home? <laughs> you were there. It didn't take very long. Anthony Fury, I'm sure, will be watching with interest uh, from the Toronto Sun. It's great to have you on the air. Um, is the obvious toss up and the obvious drama who the opposition party is uh, in about 14 hours from now? That's the biggest drama for you. Oh, I, I know what you're doing here, Greg. You said we got to bring Fury into to jazz things up, to take this nothing burger of an election campaign, and then let's, let's bring it to life. Let, let, let's set it on fire. My friend, I have been trying, but I, I cannot turn water into wine. I'm poking this thing with a stick. It ain't moving. No, I, I think to your point, the big question is not, you know, is Doug Ford going to win a majority? It's who's going to be opposition leader. Yeah. And some really, I think there's some really intriguing Toronto races. I think I'm interested to see Mark Saunders a little bit behind in the polls right now. Um, can Kristen Wong Tam become uh, an MPP? Um, there's some really intriguing four one six races to me. No, absolutely. And 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 to my previous point, you know, we've had a few weeks of going. What's really engaging people? What's really inspiring people in terms of the issues? 
things haven't delivered on that front, but you've got the races there where people are saying who's going to stay, who's not going to stay. The personalities like Mark Saunders in Don Valley West, looking at some downtown ridings, city councillors who are saying, can I make the leap? Kristen Wong Tam, what's going to play out there in downtown Toronto? And also just questions of the PCs really in 2018, bringing it down into the 416 which is something conservatives typically don't do so much. Yes, Stephen Harper did in 2011 a little bit with Eglinton Lawrence, but how's that going to play out here? It's kind of like the Ford Nation wall. Doug Ford, uh, pardon me, Rob Ford, was able to do things that conservatives hadn't been able to do before. But of course, Doug had some of that Ford Nation magic bringing him into 416. Are we going to see that continue? And interestingly enough, some polls do show that 416 numbers are pretty strong for the PCs. I've been disappointed by the the Ford campaign. I understand what's happening here. I understand uh, this is this is an NFL offense that just has to run the ball up the middle and and kill the clock. Um, but I wanted there to be more important debate on major issues. I wanted there to be more talk about how we fix our healthcare system, where public education's going. We got more of that debate, Anthony, in 2018 than we did in 2022. I'm disappointed about that, but but I understand the, the, the goal is just win, baby. I get it. Yeah, I mean, nobody likes uh, media to talk inside baseball all about themselves, but a number of uh, media persons have remarked there were requests for all of the leaders to do sit-down interviews, extended conversations. Uh, you know, on my podcast, I'd had party leaders uh, from federally come on the program. You've had the same. Mm-hmm. Here, they're kind of media shy. None of them want to go out there. But I guess the thing with Doug Ford is he goes, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing so well in the polls. Why why go out there? Why bother risking anything? The other two, I, I guess they don't want the prolonged scrutiny. I don't know. I mean, I mean, that's been one of the remarkable things. For the past two years, we've had the liberals and the NDP, Horvath Del Duca, say such strong things about uh, how, how terrible Doug Ford is supposedly doing, and we need all these COVID things, and they're happy to go up in the podium, demand this, that, and the other, stand up there for so much time. And here, they just didn't bring their A game. I mean, that's what's been deflating about the past five weeks. They've had years to lead up to this, and they brought nothing. It's been a fizzle from the opposition. So I think even people who aren't all that excited about Doug Ford are just kind of shrugging and going, well, what, you want me to be excited about these other two? And I think that's a massive problem. And I, w- I want to get to them in a little bit. But l- let me ask you about Ford. And, and some people are suggesting there's almost a, a sort of collective amnesia about what Ford's image was and maybe even who he was at, at his core as a politician right. prior to COVID. But COVID changed that. At times, he seemed so frustrated to have to close things down. You and I talked about the outdoors a ton last year at this time and how maddening um, some of the uh, rules were about mobility and and what what we did to seniors, what we did to kids. So there's an evolution of opinion here. But I I go to myself like I, I know who what I thought of that guy before COVID. And I don't even know what I what I think of him now. But at the same time. If you haven't had an evolution of opinion on COVID and we still some, see some of the people going not like nattering, 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 treating it like it's April 2020, there's been some evolution and there's a there's a trust factor with he's letting me run my household. He's letting me judge my individual risk and we all have different risks. Yeah. And one of the strange things is that Doug Ford uh, did bring in some of the harshest lockdowns in you know, the Western world and North America. He even bragged about it at times. You may say, well, I'd be on that. I'm unhappy with that. So therefore, I guess Ford should be the guy who goes. Right. But then we got the problem with the opposition leaders who never actually suggested that we step back from all of that. And even in February 2022, after we ended this last lockdown, which I think a lot of people looking back, go, yeah, what? 
wait, we did a lockdown just a few months ago. What on earth was that about? We had Andrew Horvath and Stephen Del Duca saying more, more, bring on more, bring on harder lockdowns. And then when everything goes away, what are they left with to talk about? I mean, Doug Ford has largely been campaigning on infrastructure and growing the economy. And right now, I think the thing people are feeling the most in their daily lives isn't COVID, but the price of gas, the price of groceries, yeah. the whole conversation about what well, my kids are never going to be able to afford a home. What's that all about? And they're doing a steady as she goes campaign on, on those sorts of things, economic underpinnings by the Ford government. We're not really seeing any of that with the NDP and liberals. I mean, the only thing Del Duca had with, with fire and brimstone was mandatory vaccine for the kids. And you're like, dude, we're, we're done with that. We're not having that conversation anymore. So they got nothing to bring to the table. And no one else on planet Earth is having that. And look, I, I, I would say that there's tremendous luck and timing and that matters in politics. It always has. It always will. And the shift, like if, if last year happens to be the election, He's in big trouble on June 2nd, 2021, because the third yeah. wave still in our rearview mirror, the, all the general Rick Hillier, the vaccine issues, who should get it, who shouldn't. We're going to open schools. No, we're closing them again. There, there were a lot of problems. So the timing has just seemed to work perfectly for this premier. But to your point, there wasn't somebody last year at this time. There wasn't somebody in January saying, I, I want safe schools. I want lower class sizes. I want no online learning, but I but but open them. Damn it. Open them right now because they should be. And and when we went back in mid-January, the receipts are all there. I look them up all the time. The quotes are all there. I'm not sure we should open yet. Two more weeks. Let's not take these masks off. Let's not open up restaurants to full capacity. Let's not have fans at Leafs and Raptors games. They're all there. They're all there for everybody to see, For uh, unfortunately, for the opposition parties. And why didn't we have either Andrew Horvath or Del Duca say campaign on we need a public inquiry into COVID. Because then whatever you think, if you're someone who thought there should have been more lockdowns, or if you're the people who are outraged that there were more lockdowns, you're going to go, yeah, we, we do need that inquiry. We need to get to the bottom of what happened. And that can be a rallying cry. Why don't they say, we're going to hold the Ford government to account on their COVID mistakes? Okay, that'll be interesting. You can fill in the blanks. You can project into what those mistakes are. But we've also had none of that, which is, like I think, so bizarre. So many opportunities to, to capitalize on whatever the missteps of the past two years are, and, and nobody's looking to seize all of that. Let me uh, let me shift. We have about a minute here, but I want to shift to federally. We had Nate Erskine-Smith, the liberal MP from Beaches East York, on earlier, and uh, it feels like there's there's some movement. There's some cracks in the, uh, in the foundation of the federal mandates. I feel like there's going to be movement sooner than later on it. I know um, there's just there's too much chat about all the problems at Pearson. There's too many people experiencing travel nightmares. We're seeing the Toronto police welcome back unvaccinated uh, cops at, at the yeah. end of the month. I just think there's too much. There's, the boat's going in one direction, and it has been for months, and, and I think we're going to drop these soon. What do you think? Yeah, you know, Trudeau pressed repeat on a clip from like a year ago yesterday. He said, well, I know we wish this pandemic was over, but the truth is it's not. And if we lift things now, uh, we might bring a future wave that puts everything. What are you talking about? Like, he actually said that yesterday at a press conference. Meanwhile, you got the CEO of WestJet, the head of all the tourism, uh, the airport association thing. We got to stop all of this, all this duplication, all this mandatory testing in the lines at the airports. It's just getting in the way of things. So I think Trudeau needs a reality check. I think he's stuck in, in, in thinking from a year ago. Anthony, get out and vote. Do your, do your civic duty. 
You too, good sir. Thank you. <laughs> Anthony Furia from the Toronto Sun, our guest. Uh, Sabrina Nanji will be busy as well as she often is. I would highly uh, advise you subscribe to her Substack uh, from Queens Park Observer. And she's got a great one now. Five storylines that will define the election. And Sabrina joins us right now. It's uh, it's great to have you. Um, you know, without giving all your five storylines away, I, I kind of defined it earlier as the drama is kind of the race for the silver medal, not the gold medal, it appears tonight. But it's it's drama. It's the first time in a long time. I don't think we know who the official opposition party will be. And and um, there's a lot of diverse guesses on that. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Greg. Um, and happy Election Day, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> another it three weeks. Like- Why not another three weeks of campaigning? I'm just not ready for it to end. You know, um, it's funny because like when we first started talking about this and we've been, you know, uh, you know, chatting throughout this whole thing, it seems like we're kind of been saying the same thing since day one and not really much has changed. And you're right. You know, one of the big storylines is that the more compelling race is the one for second place. And in, you know, these final hours before the big the big night, the big show at 9 p.m. after polls close today, we still don't really know who's going to form official opposition, the NDP or the Liberals who have been kind of going back and forth even more um, intensely in these last few days. Meanwhile, Doug Ford and the Conservatives have been laying low. They've been quiet, avoiding us reporters. Ford even skipped out on a photo op, you know, kind of a safe a safe bet uh, in the political world. And so uh, I, I think, you know, there's still time for a surprise, of course. You know, polls have been wrong in the past before. Um, but I think we're, we're kind of seeing already, you know, how this is going to shape up. And I'm kind of already looking to the postmortems and the aftermath of all of this. And there's going to be a lot of big questions around the future fate of the NDP and liberal leaders in particular. I think there's I, I, I said it earlier and I feel uh, emboldened by this talking to, to people on the inside politically. I think Stephen Del Duca needs to have two things happen. I think the liberals need to win more seats than, than the NDP and something you and I talked about a few weeks ago he needs to win his own riding as well i i i get that there's an opportunity um for potentially if only one of those things happens um but i think if neither happens that's that and uh, i i don't think he can be outside of queen's park commenting on politics for six straight years without a seat and well being the leader and i'm not sure he can be in queen's park um as an mp mpp rather without being leader i, I think both things need to coexist together Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, scenarios that could play out for Del Duca. You know, all the polls are saying he's he's going to not be able to win back his seat from the PC's Michael Tobolo. Uh, I think you and I had talked even when I went out there door knocking. It was really hard for me to find someone who was outrightly, you know, saying they would support Del Duca and vote for him. I've since talked to some of his supporters. So it's going to be a really tough night for him in particular. And then there's a ton of questions about what happens next. You know, Um, I think for the party to keep him on his own card carrying liberals to, you know, stick with him as leader, he would need to at least form official opposition or not official opposition, official recognized party status, which is 12 seats currently, you know, it's still a relatively big jump from the seven that the liberals got in 2018. Um, and, And that even includes if he doesn't win his seat, but you're right, you know, it's a lot harder for a leader to be holding the the government to account and doing their job inside of the legislature. That's kind of been, um, you know, taken on by John Frazier, Ottawa Centre, who was, of course, interim leader after Kathleen Wynne stepped down. Um, I think what we could see if that does happen, uh, you know, maybe a rookie liberal who actually does win their seat, maybe stepping aside, uh, maybe triggering a by-election, 
getting Stephen Del Duca a seat in the House so that he can do his job in the legislature as well. But I'm sure that he'll have a hard time, you know, making that case to liberals, making that case to, you know, a, a rookie MPP who actually did win their seat when he wasn't mm. able to. So a lot of questions around his leadership uh, for sure coming up. Give me a couple of the races, Sabrina, uh, you really like in the 416. I'm, I'm fascinated to see uh, if Kristen Wongtam can win uh, a seat um, in the legislature as a as an NDP MPP. I'm, I'm I think we got a really interesting race, don't we, with Nathan Stahl and Jill Andrew in downtown Toronto as well. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, um, so Toronto St. Paul's is actually where I live. And, uh, you know, Stephen Del Duca and Nathan Stahl were at Albert's uh, Real Jamaican Foods, you know, a great Jamaican restaurant in, in the neighborhood. Uh, and, and that's, of course, you know, just showing you right in the final hours where he is, that he's feeling very confident there. And now, of course, St. Paul's is a liberal bastion. Before 2018, the Grits had held on to it for a very long time. Uh, Carolyn Bennett has represented uh, for, for uh, you know, a long time as well, federally. And they're, they're feeling very confident there. Uh, you know, not to say... Um, Jill Andrew is not popular too, but uh, this this just goes like with a strong liberal brand and essentially, you know, uh, the liberals mm-hmm. could have put up anybody and they would have won. But of course, you know, Nathan Stahl, a doctor, has a very high profile um, and has had one during the during the pandemic. Uh, you mentioned Toronto Centre. That was another liberal bastion prior to 2018. Uh, the NDP's incumbent has stepped down, making room for Kristen Long Tam. And this one is going to be one I'm going to be watching a little closer because, of course, you know, the liberals kind of thought that they could make gains there too, which they needed, especially in the 416. And I think, you know, this is shaping up to be Kristen Wong Tam's to win, uh, you know, according to to the polls that we see. So tons of interesting races to be paying attention to today. Yeah, I I, I look and I I really am curious because people said, I I got about 60 seconds here, but people said, ah, all these incumbents are not coming back. There's no Rod Phillips. There's no Christine Elliott. That storyline has really evaporated. People thought, ah, are are people jumping from the ship of the Ford government? But it's not a factor. It it has not been a a talking point during the campaign that all these reliable names that could probably easily get reelected, those aren't factors. Yeah, I someone once told me that, you know, the electorate has the memory of a goldfish. And so it does feel like after a 29 day campaign, you know, some of those high profile resignations uh, were, you know, have fizzled out a bit, of course, but there are some spots where not having an incumbent might um, hurt the conservatives a little bit. I'm thinking of cottage country and Perry mm-hmm. South Muskoka, where the Greens are making a really intense push. Of course, you know, the conservatives had Norm Miller, longtime uh, conservative MPP, the son of a former Tory premier, but they've also got Graydon Smith now running for them. And he's been a longtime Bracebridge mayor. So that race, I think, is going to be very tight, mm-hmm. very close. Uh, and, and we'll see how it all plays out. Sabrina, thanks so much uh, for your coverage. Um, QP Observer, Sabrina Nanji, uh, and I know we'll talk next week uh, as we uh, put a bow on all this. Uh, you've been tireless. Your passion's uh, undeniable. Thanks very much for being such a great part of uh, Toronto today. Thanks, Greg. Have fun today. You got it. I will. My gosh, if you're in this business, if you're passionate at all about politics, uh, you're busting it and you're working hard and you're real eager um, to see good voter turnout and see democracy at work. That's all that's all that matters. Um, and we see around the world, around the around the continent, around the planet, how important democracy is. And I know there's people, our friends south of the border that talk about it. It's frail. It feels like it's on a knife edge. I don't think we feel that way about ours, but it's always worth protecting. So please do go vote. It does matter. You get a say no matter what. 
but go out and vote a little later on today if you have not uh, already. Speaking of democracy, a rather remarkable situation happened yesterday in Scotland. Ukraine and their national football team is still trying to qualify for World Cup. They made the Euros last summer and actually performed quite well. It was England that knocked them out. And it's amazing what you don't see coming. The last summer, obviously, the Euros were delayed from uh, 2020. And then they turn around and play the Euros in 2021. Uh, quick story. I had tickets to go to Euro 2020, to go to uh, matches at Wembley. We we're going to go to Dublin for a match. We were going to go to Amsterdam for a match. I haven't been to Amsterdam in uh, 22 years. I've changed, um, but I'm not sure it has. And uh, and we were going to go, and then obviously COVID, right? Can't go. They delay the Euros a year. Then they have limited capacity, and they canceled uh, the tickets that I had with my uh, UK-based friends. So the trip was off, and obviously I haven't been too many damn places in the last 30 months or so. I just haven't. Um, but Ukraine played well at that tournament, and they were looked set to qualify for the World Cup and then the war. And then the invasion incursion by Russian forces. And it's been nonstop. Ukraine has kept their football team together. One of their star players is Alexander Zinchenko, and he plays for Manchester City. So he's had a long season. Man City went deep in the Champions League. Man City won the Premier League. So he's been playing nonstop. You can imagine. Imagine being a Canadian. Let's localize the lead here. Imagine being a Canadian playing overseas and Canada's invaded by a neighbor a superpower and you're watching men, women and children get out while they still can families separated families torn apart by separation, by death, by permanent injury. And you're still playing soccer somewhere and you're making lots of good money to play soccer and you're staying in five star hotels and you're hanging and banging with, uh, with soccer's elite playing for man city, which Zinchenko would be. You can imagine how he'd feel, so much so that on the eve of yesterday's qualifier with Scotland between Ukraine and Scotland at Hampton Park, Zinchenko, and this is through an interpreter, had these feelings. That every Ukrainian uh, wants one thing to stop this war. He spoke with uh, people from all around the world, from uh, different, different countries, and he also spoke to some Ukrainian kids who just don't understand what's happening back in Ukraine. They only want the war to stop. They have one dream, to stop the war. Um, when it comes to football, Ukrainian team, they have their own dream. They, they want to go to the World Cup. They want to give these incredible emotions to the Ukrainians. I know, pretty cynical society we live in, right? We can be skeptical. We can be cynical. We can... Take something positive and try and find the dark cloud in it. I know that that's true. And you know that that's true. Impossible in this particular situation. There's somebody that wants to give something back to his people. And that's the best way he knows how. So Ukraine takes the field yesterday against Scotland. They've got two games to win and they're halfway there. They beat Scotland, eliminated Scotland yesterday. They have to play Wales, another good side. Gareth Bale's on that team, so that's a good side. And they have to beat Wales on the weekend. Zinchenko said this after the game in the uh, context of the celebration, knowing there's still work to do and knowing what all his country, men, women, children are going through back home. To be fair, um, obviously, of course, everyone knows the situation right now in Ukraine and every single game for us is uh, like a final game. But uh, to be fair, uh, we have dreamed like a team to be on the World Cup, so we have one more game, one more final. Scotland obviously is a great team, you know, 
They have unbelievable players in each line. So we knew it's going to be so tough. Just how big is this going to become now? What does it do to everyone back home? It's going to be a massive game for us. Everyone understands the situation. So I would say it's a final. So everyone, every one of us, we need to show our best performance in our lives. And then we see what's going to happen. It's pretty difficult to uh, to be dismissive of that. And it's pretty difficult not to root for Ukraine to beat Wales. They'd go into a group, by the way, a really intriguing political group with England, the United States and Iran. OK, this is the Iran team that Canada was going to pay to come and play against Canada in Vancouver. And then they realized this. Where'd we get this bad idea? Jeans. This is a terrible concept. So let's not do this. But when I hear those clips, I saw Scottish fans singing with Ukrainian fans yesterday. It's so much bigger than sport. It transcends athletic competition. Sometimes people use the phrase, this too shall pass. And it's easier to say that about some things than others. A bad day, a crisis. You get yelled at by somebody. Somebody lets you down. And you say, this too shall pass. And that's meant to teach us about impermanence. Nothing is permanent. Joy isn't permanent, but sadness isn't either. And whatever we go through, it's temporary, and we hope that it changes, especially for Ukraine here. Those players and their dream to make the World Cup, good on them. I'll be pulling hard for them on Saturday uh, to beat Wales and beat them badly and make sure they're playing in a World Cup in November. And hopefully by then, the country of Ukraine's in a much better place as well. Thanks again for listening to Toronto Today. Hopefully your election day goes swimmingly. Do be part of our democratic process and go vote. I don't mean that to sound cliched or hack, but it matters and voting matters and who you vote for sure does matter as well. We'll be back to recap it all tomorrow on Toronto Today to wrap up your week. You can listen to us at 640toronto.com or on the Radio Player Canada app, or you can pick us up and the best of the show will be right here where you're listening right now. Thanks again.